Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's a huge guest for me, Corey McCallum from the band, old and most legendary to me, of the band Five Knuckle chuckle more on that in a second but first if you want to get in touch with me you can find me on various forms of social media at left for damien and if you want to find and support this show you can subscribe to it on itunes you can write a review and rate it that would be awesome if you did that i'd love that and uh, you can tell your friends tell all your buddies also i have to thank the good good folks at vans for once again coming through and allowing me to bring this podcast to you they have uh, let me do this and let me have great guests that range from, you know, Dave Perner from Soul Asylum to Corey from Five Knuckle Chuckle. And next week it's going to go a, a different place, too. So that's the amazing thing about this. So thank you very much to Vans for doing that. And more on this in a second. Actually, I'll just get to it right now. This weekend, there is going to be a Vans, House of Vans party going down in Chicago Featuring the legendary, like this band is, I was talking to my brother Tristan about this, show producer Tristan Abraham, also runs the Facebook page, you can find us on Facebook, Turn It A Punk, facebook.com, uh, he is, he, this is one of his favorite bands of all time, uh, a hugely important band to a lot of music, but to the genre of, of, you know, broadly termed emo or indie music, this band is like, like one of the key, key bands. Joan of Arc comes out of this. Like so much stuff comes out of this. Owen, all this stuff kind of comes out of this band. Cap and Jazz doing a uh, reunion in Chicago. Cannot wait for the show. Playing with Hop Along. I will be doing a live podcast. So the doors are at 7 p.m., but come down early because it's first come, first entry uh, type policy. But if you're there really early, I will be doing a live Turn It A Punk podcast for the uh, very first people in line. They will pull you inside early and you will be able to come and see me do it. It's 18 plus, unfortunately, for all of you people under the age of 18. But it is a super fun time. As some of you know, I did a live podcast there that you can hear in the past episodes if you go to iTunes or, or anywhere you're listening to this. Go back a couple of weeks and you can see the live podcast that I got to do in Chicago with the Lawrence Arms and Dillinger Four. So I get to do this again. So please come on out if you are just a fan of music, I guess. Um, you can RSVP over at Vans. If you Google House of Vans, Cap and Jazz, it comes up. There's an RSVP list, so you want to get your name on that. But it is first come, first entry, and that is at 113 North Elizabeth Street in Chicago, Illinois. I'm so excited to do this. Like, you know, 
these trips to Chicago, there's like I get to go to Reckless Records down the street from the hotel I'm staying at. Get to take the transit from the airport to the hotel to the venue back. It works out perfectly. I'm going to have a good time. So that is on Saturday. So please come on out this Saturday if you're listening to this podcast when it does drop to the House of Vans. And that's another thing about this Vans thing with helping out Turn Out a Punk. They bring me out to do fun things like this. So if you cannot make it out to see this live podcast, I will be bringing it to you on this show in a couple weeks. But that is it for now. On to today's show. Today on the show, we have Corey McCallum from the band Five Michael Chuckle. Now, this is someone who, uh, as a kid, you know, I I can't think of another front person that was a bigger influence on me. Like, I had Al Nolan from Trigger Happy, huge influence on me. And, you know, him and I would, and, and Corey, though. Corey was the other person that I got to see locally a lot. And I look at what he does on stage. I was watching some videos on YouTube, and I know I'm definitely aping a lot of his moves, you know, and the way he goes into a different place when he sings. That's what I'm, uh, I think that's what I'm trying to get at, too, all these years later. Now, Five Knuckle Chuckles, a band I first got to see uh, the first time I snuck into an over 19 show. We have 19 plus shows in Ontario because that's when the drinking age is. But we got in to see the Raw Energy Christmas party. We talk about it and they played and they stole the show for me that night. And uh, they were, yeah, like, and still are one of my favorite bands of all time. Now, they put out their Charlie Horse record, then All Hammed Up, um, are the two albums that they put out on Raw Energy Records. We go into the, all this on the show. They also put out some great demo tapes. Um, and these records and these tapes, what I'm trying to get at here, had such an immense influence on all these people locally. And I'm, that's what I love about the genre of punk is that there's all these bands that are kind of unknown outside of the local sphere that they existed in. But within that local sphere, they were gods. And what they did was influence bands that went out to do other things and people that went on to do other things. You're going to hear a lot of cool stuff in this episode, including talk of Edge. Yes, Edge from WWE, not the guitar player from U2. Edge from the WWE. And Edge is the you know, was the first guy to say that how important this band was to him as a young person. So anyway, I'm not going to blather on anymore. I want you all to sit back, relax, and enjoy my friend and your friend too, Corey from Five Knuckle Chuckle on Turned Out a Punk. Corey, thank you so much for doing this, man. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I tell you, this is a big thrill for me because you are a massive, massive influence on um, me becoming a lead singer in a band. And so to get to find out about your journey and an era of Toronto punk that I'm not, I don't, or Toronto and surrounding areas, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but uh, punk that I'm not 100% uh, that up on. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Fair enough. I mean, we always considered ourselves a, a Toronto band, so. Yeah, like, I think Orangeville is Toronto, right? Like, that's, like, Toronto and surrounding areas enough that, like, you know, like, it's, we're all one scene. There's no reason to divide us. Yeah, we had to drive to Toronto to get good CDs, so <laughs> <laughs> we, we, it was basically, like, a home to us. Well, and but I did actually, my first ever time singing on stage was singing in Orangeville with the stiffs when the stiffs went up there to play a show because Orangeville had a pretty kicking scene. Um, I think in your guys's wake, 
you know, so probably as a direct result of five knuckle chuckle, but there was a, there was a kick and scene there for a while. Well, there was, there was a field party scene here in Orangeville and a house party scene that was really good. That, that was, it, it was just starting to get rolling and was rolling right before like no offense started. Like we almost wanted to be in a band so we could just play at the house parties. <laughs> so, so, and then like, yeah, definitely after us, there was still a lot of like, smaller shows there's not many shows in orangeville now there's a lot of like cover bands and stuff like that but there's not a lot going on it's it's discouraging because there's still as much good talent here as there was then but yeah it used to drive it used to do really well for punk there was like a good little punk scene now i'm so removed from it now i don't know what's going on at the schools or anything like that but i don't see any young kids throwing punk shows in orangeville which is it is what it is i suppose yeah like maybe i'm missing it too because you know I'm, i'm out of touch and probably that's a good thing that we're not that in touch with high school bands. Like, I think it'd be kind of a weird vibe if we both were super dialed in, but like, yeah, like it just doesn't seem like you don't see show flyers uh, up on like polls in the same way that you used to. That's for sure. No, they're like, they're probably on Facebook. They're definitely probably on Facebook. That's like the, yeah. the poll of 2017. Yeah. Um, I like, I, I'm still printing on paper and trying to get them onto polls though, because I still, <laughs> I, I still like doing it period. <laughs> Yeah, like it, and I think it's still like you know an effective form of advertising. Like people still walk around, you know, and like I guess everyone's dialed into their phones though at this point more than looking at. Yeah, when I when I see something on a on a poll, I think it does for me what like the show announcement on Facebook might have done for people like seven or eight years ago. Like mm-hmm. they're like, oh, what's that? And mm-hmm. then they pay attention now. Like I got like probably two hundred different show postings a day. Cause I follow so many bands or like musicians and stuff. Like, I don't like, it's just, I scroll right by them. Like it's, it, there has to be something mind bogglingly catchy in the post for me to stop and pay any attention. And I'm sure plenty of music loving people are that way with Facebook. So like just putting your stuff on Facebook these days is, I don't know. It's, I don't think it does that much anymore. It's still a great way to touch, get in touch with a certain, you know, style of person, but the poster still serves a great purpose. Yeah, that's you're right. Like it's, it's one of those things where as, as much Facebook has, you know, helped bands, it's also just become a place for bands to just dump information on people constantly. So it's just become like a white noise. Of, right. Of and like postings. we sort of, we sort of do a ratio, like 80 people said they were coming. So like 15 people are coming. Yeah. No, there's no way. And like, I one time threw a party and there was like a hundred people said they were coming. No one showed up, Corey. Not a fucking one. It was empty. Yeah. <laughs> it was the worst. Um, but this is not about my terrible show promotion or party promotion. This is about how you got yep. in a punk. And I want to start way at the beginning, which is Corey. Right. How did you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time right. you ever came across the genre? Okay. So I've got two older brothers. So I'm lucky in that respect that my musical tastes were shaped by people who were uh, into pretty good music for like my oldest brother was into like old Bruce Springsteen and like the Smiths and the Cure, like a really weird, but I guess maybe not that weird for like 85, just a weird swath of stuff. And then my, my middle brother, the one directly older than me was the headbanger. He was like the cutoff jean jacket with the leather jacket underneath the skin tight pants, the giant goofy shoes. And he started coming home 
probably when he was in grade eight, so I'd be in grade six, he was coming home with air stuff and Iron Maiden stuff. And so like metal got came into our house. It was a Roman Catholic house. So metal coming in was pretty wild in the first place. And then by grade nine, when he got to high school, it was DRI started coming home. That's a really, I think the only like true kind of punk band that he ever really got into. And so by the time I was in like grade nine myself, uh, I started like, I had no, there was nobody at my grade school that liked it at all. Like I think the Sex Pistols were the only band that anybody knew. And by the time I got into grade nine, I really just looked around and, and, and looked at, there was only about five odd punk rock guys in our high school, but I just started looking at people's shirts and like going home and trying to, going to the record store in town and trying to find the bands that people were wearing on their shirts because there was really nowhere else for me to find stuff. So like my, like the very first punk like thing that I bought was the dead milkman. And it's still like a formative band for me because there was like, I bought Bucky Fellini and I was just like, I could probably play this. Like it seems, it seems pretty simple. And they're writing, like they're writing jokey stuff like clep, but yeah. like clever, like, and it was pretty clever clever i still i still rock dead milk, dead milk all the time mm -hmm. but uh but like they they seemed accessible to me like you're listening to like slayer you're like mm, that i can't play that but you listen to the dead milkman you're like i could probably play that in a month like on any instrument so i got into that and then like the first like real punk band and, and that's not to to slag the milkman but the first real punk band that i probably ever bought was bad brains mm -hmm. And then that just, I was like, what is going on? Like it was, I think the Eye Against Eye tape, which is sort of like a re-recorded version of the the self-titled. And I just didn't, I had no clue what HR, like I loved it, but HR was just, he just, it just destroyed me. I had no clue. And then like somehow I got uh, my hands on a VHS tape. I think the classic like CBGB's set from 78 or 79, whatever, where he's wearing like a leisure suit yeah. and just rolling around on the floor of CBGB's and like just these wild leaps in the air and just frenetic energy. And I was just like, Oh, I've got to do that. That's what I got to do. Did you grow so, up in Orangeville? Absolutely. Yeah. So, the, so your brother, even your brother, your older brother being into, and even your middle brother being into that metal stuff. Like I can't imagine there were too many people into the Smiths and the Cure and on that kind of trip, even well, in old, 85. In, right. In, my older, my oldest brother was like, he was pretty like pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. And so I think the people he hung out with would be like eighties nerds, mm -hmm. like not like cool, like nerds now are cool. Yeah. Yep. I'm like, I think my brother hung out with like, total nerds like <laughs> like <laughs> revenge of the nerds nerds and yeah he started coming home with this weird stuff like bruce is bruce like this was 1983 1984 like born in the usa was huge mm -hmm. and then i think for christmas that year he got that big five vinyl box set of just live stuff which was pretty much all old stuff and that's a like that was a huge powerful band right so that was always blasted but i don't know how like who he met or whatever to bring start bringing home the Smiths and the Cure and stuff like that. And I, I, the, the, the funny thing is the only two that I, I remember he got me into them, but the only two records I remember seeing in his room are the, the killing an Arab collection of singles and the uh, louder than bombs collection of singles. So I don't even know if he ever actually had a real record. He just had the collection of singles and B sides and stuff, which was, I mean, they're both great. And they're both they great. Both yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So, and, it, and as, and then I think once again, like in 85, as you're saying, like, it's so hard to find information even later, 
it's it's like you know to be into that stuff and even just have a singles collection like you know that's not like you know that, that you get cool points for that right and this is like we're doing we're dealing with at this point we're about 85 orangeville like a a records and tapes yeah, yeah so that yeah. got like the guy that r- ran that place he had like no inclination towards getting <laughs> like punk rock kids or metal kids what they wanted yeah and i think he basically did what the metal kids did at that time was like go get i can't remember offhand but like hit parader or kerrang get that and ordered like the five things mentioned on the cover like i remember my brother coming home with guns and roses having never heard it and this is when he was deep into slayer and he was like got that guns and roses tape (laughs) and he put it on and he was just like what is this this is rock like this is rock and roll like there's love songs on this because it looked like such like a biker band yeah yeah. great great graphics and all their stuff they're you know long hair and bandanas and all of a sudden he's listening to like a new rolling stones so but that that was it like i mean we i've talked to people at length like how did we find bands like you know you did the same thing i'm sure like you you looked at the back of the record and you checked the label and if you really loved you bought everything on that label or if somebody in the band was wearing like it's a band you've never seen before but somebody's wearing an instead shirt Mm -hmm. so you buy that record or there's a sticker on the drum kit like i remember uh somebody bought scurzo because there was a minor threat sticker on the drummer's drum kit in the picture on the back of the tape <laughs> like no more adventure to buying stuff anymore because like standing i've done it standing in the record store i'm like oh this looks interesting and i open up my phone and i check it out and i'm like oh no yeah no i cannot spend ten dollars on that yeah but there goes there goes the like the wildness of the hunt right so yeah it's a trade-off of everything being at your fingertips is like you don't have that that thrill, like, you know, like, I, like the first time I saw you guys, like it was, we went to the raw energy Christmas party and we were just like, Oh, we know this band random killing that's playing. And then we got down there and they let us in, even though it was 19 plus. Right. And that's the first time I got to see you guys, you know? And that's like, that wouldn't happen now. Cause now you just go through and check every band out beforehand exactly. and know exactly what you're getting. Yep. So you're, you're trading off like the, the, total joy of finding that great thing and lording it over all your friends because you found it (laughs) like but you're also not you're probably not wasting nearly as much money on like really bad records yeah yeah so so it's it's an okay trade (laughs) yeah you're not gonna buy the epitaph instead record by mistake anymore no (laughs) no Although I still I still rock a couple songs off that record, still. <laughs> a couple tracks. Still, yeah. Um, where so like where did you kind of go from? And actually, like where did you? What led you to the bad brains of all those bands? Like was it someone's shirt at school, or was it just like you're saying seeing the sticker somewhere? It was Paul, who like you probably remember from way back in the day. He always did all of our art. He did both of our covers and stuff like that. Came to tons of the shows. Yeah. He, Paul had a home. Paul made most of his own shirts because you couldn't get shirts here. So because he, he was a great artist, he would just paint his own shirts. And all he had was like probably a black shirt with that bad brains, like, you know, the classic scrawl written across it. And it, it, I don't know. There's something about like you can overthink a logo for for months and months and never get something as good as that, which who knows how long it took them to do that little thing. But just something about that leapt out at me. And so I went down to a records and tapes and got that tape and came home with it and was just 
like I said, I didn't even know what style, because I mean, that's almost metal at times because they got those metal tones to those guitars, but it's so blitzkrieg fast. And he's singing like, you try to read a lyric sheet while listening to a Bad Brains record is like sort of an exercise in using both sides of your brain because you're reading 14 words per line and he's saying like four. <laughs> so it's great. It's, it's fantastic. You're like, this is amazing. He can write these really complicated things and then only say like four words out of it. <laughs> as opposed to like Kurt, as opposed to like Kurt Bretchett from DRI, who absolutely has to say every single syllable that he writes. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, like, was this, this is all pre-Nirvana too? You're getting this tape, right? Nirvana breaking. I mean, so I'm about 15. So this is 90. Yeah. So like, yeah. You know, there's kind of like this like weird false narrative that's constructed now about like how you know pre-Nirvana, there's just none of this stuff around. Like here you are in Orangeville getting Bad Brains tapes. Like SST was distributed properly yeah absolutely um yeah you can find like even like i mean and i don't know how that that guy at that record shop got that stuff like why would like i get why he would have a slayer record or a metallica record at that point before the black album and stuff but why would he have a bad rings record i have no idea so maybe i should give him a little bit more credit for being a tiny bit adventurous in a tiny town with like eight punks in it so yeah, it's going to turn out that he was like the guitar player in like uh, uh, MSI or something. <laughs> oh, that'd be absolutely incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of get the so you get the bad brains thing, and and then are you friends with like Paul and the rest of like sort of these punk no. kids at your school at this point? Oh no! And and here's the thing: is like I mean, punk is great and punk's awful yeah. because like in a, in a small town, like. So all the punkers know each other, right? So I show up and I'm this, like, I was like this chubby, goofy little grade nine kid. And I was forehead junior. My brother was forehead. So I was forehead junior. And so the metal kids all knew me, like the rock-ons, the bangers, they all knew me. Junior, like every time I walk past the smoking section or whatever. But the punks don't know me at all. And so I walk in a couple weeks later, I've found a Bad Brain shirt down probably at Culture Shock at Brampton or something. And I'm wearing it. And immediately get made fun of the who's this guy like who's this kid with the bad brain shirt which is like in retrospect funny because they all became my friends <laughs> yeah. but at the time you're at the time you're like oh like i found this thing that like i'm going to be part of this crew that gets what i'm into <laughs> they're just like who are you boy so it took a while like i didn't hang out with any of those guys for years i still hung out with all my like indie rock fan friends and like just like a lot of hip hop friends at that point. And, uh, I started hanging out with Adam language, the bassist from five knuckle chuckle mm -hmm. in his basement. He lives right around the corner from me and he played sports and I played sports and we were just both into some of the same stuff. Now his older brother ran with my brother forehead. So in, in Dan, their, their crew was called damage incorporated. Did they have a band? They wrote it. No, no, no. They just wrote it on their jackets. <laughs> Who needs it? Who needs a band when you can write like Metallica songs on the back of your jacket? <laughs> That's awesome. all right thing. You're automatically a gang, right? Yeah. So, so Chris was into like, he was four years older than us. Like, and he was into like tons of bands and he had stuff in the basement. Like we would just go over to Adam's house and just put on tunes. And they had so much stuff there that I'd never heard. I'd never heard. Uh, and no one else wanted to play was a huge Base Adam Langridge basement record, um, the Guilt Parade record was huge in that basement. Um, all the 
all this layer of stuff, obviously. Minor threat. I, that's where I got into minor threat. That's where I got into no effects. Where's like, he getting this stuff from? Like, where, where's his influence into this stuff? Well, I mean, Chris, Chris is four years older than us, so I don't even know where he got it. Like, yeah. but yeah, so Chris was always a weird metalhead. He was just as I think Chris's like favorite band for a long time was Pennywise, even though he was like a diehard Slayer fan. Yeah. So like coming from a like small town like Orangeville, punk's not as disjoint. Punk at that time wasn't as disjointed. It is. It wasn't as splintered, right? Mm-hmm. If it was fast, it really didn't like DRI to Slayer to Pennywise to, you know, it's not that big a leap. I think once we overthink it and start like paying too much attention to what the bands were dressed in or whatever, then you start worrying about what style of punk they are. But back then we, it was just, if it was fast, we were into it. We didn't care. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah, we just started like hanging out in the basement and, and Adam was starting to play bass. He was already playing bass in like a sort of like a Ned's atomic dustbin kind of like alternative band. But we would just sit in the basement and he would just play bass to whatever we were listening to. And then Beasley, Mark Beasley, who hung around for the longest time with us mm-hmm. was in the first, he was he was starting to play guitar and our friend gord was starting to had played a bit of guitar so we were just like oh let's like write like let's write a song like like bad religion we were listening to a ton of bad religion at the time ton of suffer where did that like i was gonna say because you guys like you know i remember you telling me that scott saw no effects on uh like the rib tour not ribbed um yeah rib tour right Uh, like yeah. It's like, where did that influence come from? Like that stuff. When did you guys find out about that, that scene? And this is the, like, Scott lived on when I grew up and all through five knuckle chuckle, Scott lived six houses away from me up Madison Avenue. Okay. Wow. And, and Kevin James from like Bender and ended up in trigger happy. And now he's in five knuckle chuckle with us lived right beside me. And they were, they were all friends with each other. They all skated with, and they all, were into these other bands and like they were buying like the little magazines, like, you know, uh, what's the, not book your own fucking life. What's the actual magazine? Max rock and roll. roll. Stuff like that. And then parsing through it, looking for like specific, but like they'd seen like some of those guys had seen like DRI and and seven sack of those classic, like the seven seconds and snuff show or whatever. When they were like Mm -hmm. 14 years old, their parents were already letting them go to shows. So by the time I'm 14 years old and they're two or three years older, they've already been to a bunch of shows. They know countless bands that I don't. And so as soon as I was able to like link up with them, then like immediately I had all these like bands at my disposal. So were there bands in Orangeville? Like, like I'm trying to think of like, you know, like who was like the Orangeville, like, you know, Sons of Ishmael or something. Orangeville band at the time. There was a couple. Bender before they got like CFMY pop Bender. Okay. Bender was doing like, they were doing like SNFU songs. Whoa. Like old change of heart songs. They were doing like, they were doing stuff like that at field parties. Did and they Scott record was actually, in that period? No, 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 they didn't. And oh. Scott was actually their drummer at that point. Oh, crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but the best, the best, the best band from Orangeville, and I never got to see them play. This is just a thing of legend, but they were called Gasp, which like G A S P, mm-hmm. which was got a staring problem. And, and Tim was the only like out and out, like Queen Street looking punk guy in Orangeville. Like he had the like six inch spikes on his head and like, 
cut-off jean jacket with cut-off shirt under it and, like, wrist spikes and bandanas tied here and there. And, like, his his jacket had it. Like, there was – Orangeville jackets were amazing. He had gasp written on the back of his jacket with, like, a, a crudely rendered skull. Got a staring problem. I've always loved that name. I'm just like, that's just an amazing name for – but I've never heard one note from them. I have no idea. No, they never recorded so, either. I have no – I don't think so. Oh, I'd have to ask him. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's a single note recorded, but gasp. That yeah, so there awesome. were bands, and and people were going – like, people were – like, you'd see a band at a, at a field party, and they'd be playing, like, Ned's and, like, Change of Heart. Change of Heart was big in Orangeville for some reason. Mm-hmm. But then they'd also, like – they'd do, like, So What by Ministry. Like, the same band, just playing all covered. <laughs> And people would just lose it. Like, it was just this weird scene where, like, we were just so happy to get any good music that we didn't really, like, all of my alternative friends were as much into ministry as they were into Blur mm-hmm. or or anything, or Stone Roses or anything like that. They were just, they were, they were called the Hair Posse, all, like, the, the Brit weirdos and, like, the American indie rock guys. It was all just, like, one big glom of alternative. The only, the only place it kind of got parsed was right at, like, Goth. And if you crossed over into goth, you were in Orangeville, you were called the tree, pe- you were called the tree people. And I don't know where, where that came from, but it's stuck. I still see them to this day. I'm like, oh, look at that tree person there. And really? No one it's knows a goth? Yeah, guys called tree people? <laughs> tree people. And who knows? Maybe that, like, I think that I heard one that they used to sit in the trees up like during like breaks at the high school and like smoke their cigarettes and stuff. They'd actually sit up in the trees. I'm like, that's, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so we're sitting in this basement and we're and we're writing this one song we were, and i to this day i could probably do the whole song it's called the children of chernobyl was our song it's like greg graffin rip off deluxe but like with our ridiculously stupid humor right and we don't have a drummer and gord is like i'll get scott to drum because he's already friends with scott i'm like what scott like that lives just over there like i hate that guy and I didn't, I didn't even know him, but this is like grade 11, me hating grade 12, Scott, because we don't really know each other and probably like one wrong look somewhere along the lines. He's like, no, 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 Scott's fine. We started jamming and that was it. It was, it was no offense. Like right then with like, which was the most blatant, like no effects rip off for a name. We're just like, no effects, no offense. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. We're brilliant. It's so clever. <laughs> So like were like were there any other bands at that time doing that style around? Like who in uh, Toronto? No. In Toronto? Uh like our our Toronto inn was Hockey Teeth. Oh yeah. Hockey Teeth. Like we went down somebody had seen Hockey Teeth and they're like I think it was Kevin James. He's like, You you guys gotta see Hockey Teeth. So we went down to a classic studio show mm-hmm. and saw Hockey Teeth there in the basement. And we were like Hockey Teeth to us was they were incredible. And they were, I mean, they were incredible. Like the, the times I've seen hockey, I'll put up against most events. They were super fun, always tight. Crowds crazy. Mark was always a maniac. And so like that night. That's like one thing that sucks about Canada is like that band is like kind of forgotten now. Right. Like, and like try to find about... anything, try to find anything. But like, I think I've found maybe two songs online. Like yeah. they have like, they have pretty bad net presence, which mm-hmm. like I'm just learning in the last week. So does five knuckle chuckle. So I can't, I'm not pointing fingers, but, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna but say. even at that very first show. So I sneak into that show at 18, like I'm only probably 17 and a half at this point, And I get into that show somehow and we know that they do. I don't want to hear it. 
And so I go up to Mark before the show. Somebody points out there, like, that's the guy from Hockey. I'm like, can I sing? I don't want to hear it tonight. And he's like, sure. Sight unseen, never, doesn't know who I am. Just points at me when that song comes up, I jump up, I sing it. I've done, like, I think a show, one show in Orangeville on our tennis court. Like, that was the band Fiesta. That was our big No Offense debut. And uh, just jumped around like a lunatic, screaming and yelling. And afterwards, he's like, have you got a band? And I told him about No Offense. And, and like, that night, he's like, okay, well, we've got a show in two weeks coming up at Naked Lunch with, I can't remember who it was, but it was us, Hawk Steve, and somebody else. He's like, come on down. And that was our, like, that was our out of Orangeville. So that's awesome, man. Hockey teeth. And they were like a band at a time in Toronto where I guess there were like the goofs and dirty bird and like random killing and stuff. Yeah. But like they kept that, that, and, and our, and armed and hammered, of course, but like they kept like yeah. that fire burning and like, you know, they're just like so many young people. Like, you know, I remember going to their shows and just how cool they were to you when you came to their shows. Right. Um, did you guys like, when did you guys become aware of like, like trigger happy? Uh, it like as a band, I can't even remember how we ever first met them, but it's certainly like we, we met them in like, I guess like we knew of deep end mm-hmm. and we knew of, uh, what's the, what's the record? Well, I mean, Kevin and those guys, they all had like the five foot nothing. So we knew like there was a lineage there. Okay. And so somehow we ended up getting a trigger happy show. And it might have even been that we had already been talking to Ron or G at this point. And and Ron or G already had Trigger Happy for that brief period of time. And so we played with them and we just got along really well with them. And I think like it was sort of a kindred like they were doing sort of a a techie yet melodic fast thing with like humor and sarcasm. Like where there was a lot of things that we were doing in theory, the same. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we got along great right away. And they just, they floated us a whole bunch of shows right, right off the top. Like I remember we had played a show with them in Sudbury and after the, I think it was the last night of us doing like a three night thing, only that show with them, we'd played two other nights and then meeting them in Sudbury and, and Al was just like, Come, we're going on tour. Let's go. Like just call home and say, you're not coming home. Like, come on tour with us. We'll, we'll get you on to every show. Were you guys already five like, knuckle oh, chuckle? I've got a, I've got a. Uh, yeah, I think we're, I think we're five knuckle chuckle at this point. Okay, yeah. okay. No offense, didn't last very long in Toronto. Okay, because like we caught wind pretty fast. Like both of our tapes were sort of made in Orangeville and sold in Orangeville. Like they, by the time we were getting down to Toronto, we like those first couple shows were definitely no offense, but after then it, it switched to five knuckle pretty quick. What like what? Why did you guys decide to change the name? It, so many people were like just saying, "Oh yeah, that's like no thanks." <laughs> like, Is this that obvious to everybody? We thought we were amazing. We were like, "No one's gonna get this." No offense. Oh, I get it. No offense. No, it was everybody's like, "Oh yeah, no effects." Yeah, we get it. Like right, and and so like Sean Berger from Bender was just he was actually he came up with Five Knuckle Chuckle. He said it at one point. He's like, you guys, like, if you're thinking of changing your name, you should go with Five Knuckle Chocolate. And we were like, oh, that's that's sort of – it's catchy and it goes along with, like, you know, the ridiculousness of most of what we were doing at that point. Mm-hmm. And then we were driving out of town one time to a show and I looked up at the – I was actually, like, I had worked at KFC. And we drove past the sign and I saw the the logo and I was just like, FKC. And then that's that's where we got those shirts from, which – 
did us, you know, wonders for years. I still see people in those shirts. Yeah, I, bought, so. I finally bought Sandy's one offer. So now I have one to go. <laughs> yeah. Some guy ripped it while we were playing flag football in gym class, my one that I had back in the day. So I had to buy Sandy's offer recently. So now so I have much one wrong. So much wrong with that story. <laughs> what, what were you doing playing flag football? Uh, you had to get the credit in gym it. somehow. You had to get that gym credit somehow. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, flag football seemed like the easiest way. Absolutely. Uh, You're not going to right? Yeah. In theory, but there's always that one goof still going to hammer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like, yeah, it's like how, how did it um, come about with Ronergy? Like, were you like, cause they, had they, had they done like detachable penis? Like what was their, they had a big hit, right? King missile. King missile. Yeah. Yeah. It was their big hit. But so, like, how'd you become aware of that yep. label? Well, I, that one, I, I'm almost definite that like that just came up from them coming to trigger happy shows that we were playing at. Mm -hmm. And so between Graham and Chris, the two of them approaching us and saying, we'd like to work with you, come down and, and, and have some meetings with us. And, and we did. And I mean, we were, I think Christ, I was 19 at that point. I don't, I don't speak ill of raw energy at all, but like I had no clue what was going on. We were just like, you're going to pay for the record. You're going to put us in a studio for more than four hours and, and you're going to actually print it on CD. Like it was just, you know, we couldn't, and it was just a one record deal. We didn't have any kind of long-term deal with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we were just, they seemed, they, they said all the right things to get us, you know, in their camp and the, the records are there. I mean, yeah. they, they came out, a lot of people got them. So, they did. They did a good job of getting them out. They got us into some magazines. They got us some interesting shows and stuff like that. You you, go, you look back at what they were doing in that time. Ronergy was getting a lot of stuff done. Yeah, like, like it's. I'm looking at my my like CD wall right now, and I'm looking at the stuff that they put out, and it's like, it's like you know, and I and once again, I wasn't on the label, so I don't know what the business practice end of it was like, but like as far as documenting an era of Toronto, they put out like every significant record of the right. time period. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you couldn't go to a, a Toronto punk rock show like of, of sort of like, you know, a certain level and higher where, where one of those bands wasn't playing like random killing was playing or we were playing or for a while there, like three minute males got a bunch of shows. Trunk got a bunch of shows. Maryland's vitamins got a bunch of shows. Trigger happy Jersey. I mean, yeah, Jersey. Like they had, they had everybody there for for a good six, seven years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, kudos to them. I mean, I know having self, you know, released so much stuff since, how much of a nightmare all of it is. Mm -hmm. So, for them to be juggling all those bands, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, they had, they had this guy Alex with them for a while, who was actually from King Apparatus. But I think more often than not, it was Chris and Graham and whoever was sort of you know, quote unquote, interning with them at the time. Yeah. So they juggled a ton of bands. They had international, like our records got out in, in Europe and stuff like that. Like, I don't think they made a great splash or anything, but they still got out. Other people paid for them over there. So, I mean, they did a lot of stuff that even under today's model is, is incredibly difficult to do. For a while, the only web presence that there was for five knuckle chuckle was like, was a review of the German uh, release of the CD on Blackbird. 
Like I remember part. Googling it way back when and being like, this is the only reference to this at all. <laughs> um, Amazing. Yeah. But like, I like, so it was never a case where they were like holding you guys back from like signing with an American label or anything like that. Nope. No, we never got a sniff from anybody else, but I don't like, we didn't even know how to shop. Like, I don't think we like upon signing with raw energy, I, I don't think we ever contacted another label until we were done. I thought like you guys did record. something. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I thought I thought you, I remember you telling me about something where you guys went to California, and were talking to Hopeless. Well, we were talking to this guy Dave, who was from California, and we stayed at his place when we were there and everything like that. And I guess he was he was Lagwagon Soundman. Okay. So we'd met him up here doing doing the snow jams, and then when we did our little tour, we were down there and we stayed at his place when we were doing the California shows. And he was trying to hook us up with Hopeless. Okay. But he was our contact to a contact and nothing ever came of it. Okay. So. What, like, and so I guess we, we jumped like way, way, way ahead because like I want to get yeah. to like, uh, so you guys record that demo, um, which is, I still think a classic, one of the classic demos from Toronto. <laughs> How were you guys like, so back, Bob Backlund, where did the wrestling influence come from? Well, I mean, I like, I mean, for the other guys, I can't speak to anybody else in the band, but like, I know that I was like a diehard wrestling kid. Like I went to, I was at the exhibition when like Andre was the giant machine and, and Orndorff like hit Hulk Hogan with the chair. And then the ref overturned the decision when he saw the big screen play that like I was at that. So, like, I was a huge fan. And then when I started hanging out with these punk rock guys, we used to sit around on the weekends and watch wrestling. And, like, Michael and Paul, who are, like, two of the artist guys that we hung around with a lot, they sort of introduced us to when Backlund made his return, sort of, like, when he came back and was sort of clueless at first. And then he became the, the Uber American, like screaming villain. Mm -hmm. And we were just, we would just be in hysterics. Like we would be in absolute hysterics watching him. Like he was, he was selling it. So he was so over the top. It was incredible. And like the, the one Royal rumble where he's in it and he gets pummeled by like every single guy that comes in the ring, takes their turn, like on backland. Yeah. And there's one point where he's just hanging off. Like he's literally like, we called him the spider monkey. He's like, like arms and legs wrapped around a rope. And I think there's three guys just kicking him, trying to get him out. We're like, we pretty sure like they are legitimately just trying to follow the script. And Backlund's just making this like rogue push of his own volition to win the belt. Like he's in there by hook or by crook. And we just like, we you couldn't, you couldn't have peeled us off the floor. We were laughing so hard. So he just became like, who, what, you're not going to write a, a punk song about like ultimate warrior or Hulk Hogan. Like you're going to write it about Bob Backlund. He's, he's definitely more punk rock than, you know, macho man yeah i i agree though macho man did try and kill the misfits one time so he gets True. like some points for that and, i guess and at this time like the, the all of us we are only wwf fans we don't watch anything else at all like that's that is wrestling that's it we get that there's other stuff and we know like we know that guys have come from places but we don't care one bit where they're from if it's not WWF, if it's not WWF, it's not wrestling because we couldn't get any of that stuff like on our channels. Yeah, it wasn't on TSN. So, 
No. And the only like access any of us had to that stuff was wrestling magazines when Mm -hmm. you're a kid Mm -hmm. and you'd see, and wrestling magazines, WWF stuff always looked super pimp. It always looked really good. And then you'd see like AWA pictures and like, like these Polaroid pictures of guys (laughs) like kind of like not so fit, not steroided out of their mind guys, like badly exposed pictures and then you'd get like some of these other ones, like the blood matches and stuff like that. And you're, you're, you're intrigued, but like, it's just such a different world. You're just like, who, who, like, I don't know what these guys are doing. I didn't know that there was huge things going on in Japan. I didn't know anything about luchadors. I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. It was WWF or bust. Because like, so that's where Bob Ackley comes from. Cause you, you kind of like go to the, like the West Beverly high of Southern Ontario because of the uh, number of uh, my favorite punk bands and also the fact that Edge and Christian went to your high school too, right? Well, and that's the funny thing is like, so we're in high school and those guys are saying in high school, like I wasn't, I'm, I'm friendly with both of those guys, but mm-hmm. Scott and Kevin and those guys are, are legit friends with them. So, cause they're both a year older than me. Yeah. And those guys at like 16 and 17 were saying we are going to be professional wrestlers we're going to be in the WWF and like coming from probably anywhere, but definitely coming from Orangeville. And they weren't really big at that point. Yeah. Like Riso was not big at all. Jay was always at least tall and had big and, and I mean, Adam and he always had big broad shoulders, but he wasn't ripped by any stretch. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, yeah, we're going to be wrestlers. And it was like, everybody loved those, especially Adam. He's one of the most lovable guys ever no one really called them on it because you're just like, Oh, well good for you. And you'd kind of turn your back and be like, Oh, that guy's good thinks he's going to be a wrestler. And then a couple of years later we hear like, he's on these independent circuits and doing like, you know, Sully's gym shows and stuff like that. And we're just like, okay, well, I guess he's, that's what he's going to be. He's going to be like this indie wrestler. And then I remember I'm up in, so I've left, I know we're jumping around time wise, but I've left five knuckle chuckle at this point. I'm up in Ottawa going to, Carlton University and there is it's the night after Bret Hart got screwed mm-hmm. so it's the Monday night after the pay-per-view it's a Raw's War filming in Ottawa so all my friends come up from Toronto and they're like Adam's supposed to be wrestling in the pre-show tonight well, I'm like what they're like yeah Adam as Sexton Hardcastle because that was his like pre-edge name yeah yeah <laughs> fought fought Glenn Kulka the ex like uh I think he's a was he a CFL guy? Yeah, I think he was something CFL like that, guy, right? Yeah. So, but it was Glenn Kolka's debut. It was Adam's debut as well, but they weren't pushing Adam at all, right? So they yeah. just brought in this jobber, and they're like, "It's Glenn Kolka's debut versus Sexton Hardcastle," and he was already basically Edge. Like he was selling it to the crowd, and we had signs for like Sexton Hardcastle. We'd painted ourselves up like various. It was it was utterly ridiculous, but yeah. So we were actually there for the first WWF match that Adam ever had. And then it's, he has shown up at other matches where like some of our friends have shown up and they've unfurled like edges or reg banners and like, just like totally Orangeville specific slags (laughs) on banners and stuff like that. And he's found them in the audience and he'll give them like the guns or a wink at them. They're like, he's pretty much burst out laughing a couple times at some of the stuff that he's seen. So yeah, he's, so uh, we were like, so that just boosted when, when, when him and Christian were really going and like winning a belt every second week, we were just, we were at every pay-per-view like down at the bar or like we'd get it at somebody. So we were just, we were just diehard at that point because we were just living, you know, off of their 
adrenaline. We were just like, go, go, go. It was great. Yeah, it's like amazing. I like the, the fact that they knew, like, you know, they both were just like that set on this goal and just like manifest destiny. Got it. <laughs> right. And it's not even like pro hockey, like pro hockey. You could go to various leagues. I guess you can with the wrestling, too. But like they I don't think everything to them was to get to the WWF. Yeah. Yeah. And so like pro hockey, you're like, at least there's 30 teams and there's like 25 guys on each team. So that's like 600, 700 guys. Pro wrestling, there's WWF wrestling. What do they have on their roster at a given time? Hundred people. Yeah, if that. In the entire world, yeah. are trying to be one of those one hundred people, and we've got two of them walking through our halls, and they're like, it just seems so unrealistic. Like, great, it, you know, they're, they're the perfect example of have big dreams and do everything you can to 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 go after them because they they did it and they got huge. Like those guys were like undeniable for a couple of years there, they were like on top of the world. So, and like, and like you said, like I've, I've never met Christian, but like edge, one of the nicest people, like he, he is still like one of the nicest people. And like, you know, like hasn't lost that at all. No, he's still like, he's very much just a, an affable, like small town guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's quick to laugh. He's like, anytime anybody sees him here around town, he like, immediately is into into all the old routines dropping like old punchlines and jokes he hasn't forgotten anybody he still sees anybody he knows he's got time for them yeah he's just he's he's a great dude yeah definitely uh and when i when i played him that five knuckle chuckle video on the on the wedge you should have seen his face man he was pretty stoked yeah (laughs) um yeah so where so you guys record um the also like where did the Dennis the Menace influence come from because you guys were I remember being super into British Dennis the Menace cuz my dad was English and like seeing that referenced Well and you wore that like black and red sweater yep like a lot Yeah well that's and, because I saw it referenced in the record so I'm like oh I'm going to be cool with the band yeah. if I wear this <laughs> Yeah I wasn't sure if it was in uh, like a chicken or the egg thing I didn't know what came first but Oh, it was definitely the egg in this case, Corey. (laughs) Definitely the egg. No, uh, Scott's parents are Irish. So they grew up with the Beano. And every, like Scott's room, I think probably Scott is the the five knuckle chuckle pack rat. He's got everything. Like, I don't think Scott's ever thrown anything away. So I think he still has all his Beano annuals. Every year for Christmas, I think he said he would get a Beano annual. And so I don't know how it started getting cut and paste and used into stuff. Like... But that was just like our hodgepodge of like we were making records to to make ourselves laugh. Mm-hmm. Like the jokes are like you couldn't more so on all hand like all hammed up is the record for Orange. Like it's all inside jokes. Like there's there's a lot of of Charlie Horse that's that's we were trying to be more topical and like a bit more political because of what we were listening to at the time. And I just think. It doesn't. It doesn't speak. I, I. 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 I identified more with all hammed up. Just when we were writing stuff, all of our flyers were for our friends. All of our like the the liner notes, all the pictures, like in the collages. Half the pictures in the collages aren't even people in the band. They're just people from Orangeville at parties and stuff like that. So, so somehow Dennis the Menace got stuck in there. I like when you guys were recording. Uh, I guess before we get to all hammed up, because that's like the first time I was ever in a recording studio. And, uh, yeah, I definitely remember that session that you guys recorded that during, but like when you were doing Charlie horse, what was like that? Like, so you met Ron energy and they, they agreed to put out the record. Did they pick the studio or did you guys pick that studio? They, they 
they suggested Simon Head. Okay. And Simon had uh, like an in on that studio. If we used it that weekend, it would only cost us like a fraction of the cost because it was in between two bands and they couldn't get anybody to take it. And he lived 20 minutes away from it. Like it was on the other side. It's like sort of in Planet Ajax there. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember the name of the studio. But it was out in the middle of nowhere. Apparently, it's where like Rush filmed the video for, uh, I don't know, some video. I'm not a huge Rush fan, but <laughs> nor am I because I think so, I know the video you're yeah. talking about. Well, and, and that's it's where, where the Bare Naked Ladies recorded Gordon because I remember the Gordon record was up on the wall with like the gold disc or whatever. So, but it was it was a nice little studio, and then and so yeah, they hooked us up with Simon, who we really barely knew at all. We knew he was in Red Fisher, I think. And that's it. We didn't know anything about him, but they're like, no, no, he's into the stuff that you guys want to sound like. So he played in and I think for, Chuckle for a minute, right? I'm not five, sorry. He played in Trigger Happy for a minute, right? He might have. He ran with that crew like in and out for a long. I mean, you could write a book with all the, the rotating members of Trigger Happy, right? Yeah. For bass, bassists and drummers over the years. Yeah. It's yeah. been a lot. So yeah. there's a very good chance that that happened. But he definitely is friends with all those guys. Okay. So. So they, and I think Raw Energy didn't eat, like, we were trying to be like a lot more California, quote unquote, than, than what Raw Energy was really doing at the time. Mm-hmm. So like we had like hallmarks that we wanted to sound like that. I don't think they quite got what we were doing, but they knew like we knew or thought we knew what we were doing. So they said like, Simon's the closest thing that we know that can do that. So there you go. Yeah, and so so Charlie Horse, which I think was recorded over like three. I don't think we ever. Neither record was longer than three days recording, and like walk out with the finished mix. Like it's it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous at this point to think back. I talked to engineers, and and they're just like, "Oh God, no! We we spend the first day just setting up the drum kit." Well, and how much would it like, oh, cost back then too? Like you know, it was like studios were so expensive. Yeah, because there's no home recording no to home speak recording. of. That's yeah. That's it. good. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, thousands of dollars for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all any, any small label can, can scrabble together. So you go in pretty ready. There's no experiment. There's no writing in the studio. That's for sure. There's no experimenting. Like you go in as tight as you can possibly get. And you live with some sounds that you're not like you get to about 1230 on the first day and you're like, come on, we got to get like the drum sound fine. i know i'll have to live with this for 70 years but the drums sound fine let's go (laughs) and then two weeks later you're like oh that snare why (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i think that record i think that of all the records that kind of came out in that period like i think that trunk record you definitely hear that way more like some of the sounds on the recording like you're like they didn't get this right because they were probably really rushed but i think i don't know i think charlie horse still sounds good like Charlie Horse sounds. Re- I think of the two records, Charlie Horse sounds tighter, and I, I will give that specifically to Simon Head doing actual production, and mostly with like if you listen to Adam's bass lines on Charlie Horse, Adam's not really playing like Adam plays. Simon made him play like really, really controlled. There's still like very Adamy parts to it, but Adam is playing a lot of what the guitars are playing. And that really makes it like a lot tighter of a sound. Mm -hmm. And then by the time, like we knew after it was all done that he didn't like it. He didn't like being sort of told what to do. 
Like he was a very good, like very, very good bassist. And it's not that he was saying anything bad about Simon, but he was just like, you, you can't tell me how to play bass like me. And so we know like he never really loved the way he played on that record. So when we got a chance to do all hammed up, we just said, play whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's the bass lines on all hammed up are ridiculous. They're insane, but it definitely makes for a wilder sound. Plus we were listening to it at that point. I think satanic servers were on our radar so like they've got that like walking, running baseline through everything. So we were just like, oh, that that that's sort of what we're going for too. So, but yeah, Charlie Horse tighter, definitely tighter guitar sound too. John McNabb, who ended up in Trigger Happy as well, mm-hmm. uh, has a like he had a great guitar sound and he could definitely play. He could play his ass off. So he played great on that record. Yeah, like he left and joined Trigger Happy, right? There was like, and there was like, I remember like. You don't have to get into this now, <laughs> but I remember there was like weird beef for a minute too, right? Yeah, like it was literally like it was a minute. Like I'm certainly not going to get into it, but <laughs> like <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't working with us. Let's just like we'll we'll put it at that. Yeah, um, there was a split, and then he was in Trigger Happy, and the beef really. I don't. I don't. I think more people perceived a beef than there was. Because Trigger Happy didn't really care because they got a second guitarist out of it. And I'm pretty sure that, like, that's the first time they had a second guitarist. So, like, it it gave Mark Gibson a ton of room to do extra stuff. Yeah. So they were quite happy. They were quite happy. And we were we were fine with the decision we had made mm-hmm. and ended up with a couple of guitarists in a row that we that we liked working with and got a lot of good stuff done with. So and we still like the first was Sean Berger from Bender from town he played on like there's a little demo that happens a, just a tape only demo that happens in between charlie horse and all hammed up that's like impossible oh, i got it i yeah i got it but, yeah so that's like that's sean berger from bender playing on those songs and then no, that demo's amazing too and it's sped like, like the thing about that demo is it's that something happened on the four track. Like it's sped up. <laughs> oh, really? Like if you listen to my voice, I don't like, I can sing pretty high, but I don't sing that high. <laughs> There's high, moments that on that. High. I totally sound like a, ch- a girl on that record. <laughs> Or on that tape, whatever. I still love it because there's some songs and there's, there's, <laughs> that's the only songs. place to get some of those songs, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so, and then that didn't work. Like the Sean thing didn't work. So then we got Wes from Three Infinite Males and Wes is still with us to this day. So, like, mm-hmm. we're happy with the way it turned out. I think a lot of people were just like, oh, John's in trigger happy now. Yeah. And we we're like, that's, that's fine. Like, we don't really care and they shouldn't care that we don't care like it like they could take it however they wanted to and we could like and no one really had anything to say about how we took it so i think it was more just a lot of people talking about it than we were and i guess that's like the way it is always right like people you know end up just fiending off the gossip you know like i see yeah. this is someone that was definitely fiending off the gossip at that point too Sure. And at that point, like between us and Trigger Happy, like we were very blessed at that point, like between us and Trigger Happy, almost any like Epitaph or Fat Rec show or anything along those lines that came to Toronto for like two years, like one of the two of us was playing it. Give or take, there was a, there was a lot of them. And so like if you're a fan of that style, you you basically like knew both of those bands really well because we played like a ton of those opening spots. Did you guys tour at all when, when Charlie Horse came out? Yeah, we toured. We Well, we actually, like, 
we toured down to Cal. That's the when we met the California guy. But we toured down to California and then back up to Vancouver and then across back through Canada. But we like it was literally when it, the album came out. Like we picked up our CDs on the road. Graham shipped them to us on the road. So we started this, the tour with no CDs and got them halfway through. I think. Was that the tour? So that was that was a tour. Oh, sorry, go on. That was a tour, that was a tour with Bender. That was like the Orange Bowl. We called that the Goggles of Doom tour. That was like us in the chuck wagon. That was our like old maroon, purple brown van thing, and and Bender in the Starship Bender Prize, which was their their baby blue van, two Venduras, sailing off into the abyss. It was hysterical. So, what were you selling on that tour prior to getting the CDs? Uh, just the FKC shirts. Oh, this is true. <laughs> That's it. But we didn't know. We did it. We were doing great. Like that was the era when the skate companies were starting to glom onto the, oh, if we rip off big brands, people love that. It doesn't matter what your brand, like people don't have to know what independent trucks are if you make it into the Hot Wheels sign. People know what Hot Wheels are and they'll just buy it. Yeah. So that, that, that FKC shirt did us fantastic for quite a while and like we we played a like a i think it was called hemp fest or wheat fest or something out in saskatchewan and we got there and we weren't even on the show like this is like us booking ourselves and kev booking us with like a book your own fucking life and just calling people and so we get there and we're not even playing the day like at all and so kevin from bender and corb lund from at that time the smalls figure out a way to get us on for like 20 minutes in the evening we play and then we go back to the merch thing and like all of our shirts are gone <laughs> and no one no one knows us at all like that the better days video had had come and gone at this point and, and certain there was a handful of people at every shows that were showing up because of the video but it was that was solely on that logo that logo sold a ton of shirts and what when what ended up happening is we showed up we played in Sudbury about a year later and there we went to a skate shop there and they were selling five knuckle chuckle shirts in, in colors that we'd never print. They'd started printing their own. Like there was purple five knuckle chuckles. Yeah. So, which is like, which at the time we were like, Oh, you motherfuckers. But then like, you look back now and you're like, that's, that's pretty awesome. People, yeah. People were taking upon themselves to make your shirt. Like it's sort of like, I mean, they were making probably the same pittance that we were making. They're scrambling to keep a skate store alive and Sudbury, probably, you know, desperation calls for desperate, desperate measures. So I would good on them. I would buy a purple five knuckle chuckle shirt. Oh, uh, it was so ugly. (laughs) It was so ugly. (laughs) But yeah, that's Um, all we had on that tour. That's all we were selling was, was, was shirts until about halfway through. And then we were selling Charlie. So had you like, I, I guess like I, you know, I want to talk about the better days video, but I also wanted to talk about this, like, when did you encounter Guttermouth? Was it on that tour? Guttermouth came, they opened for oh, the guys Corey? went to the show and we had yeah. Oh sorry, oh. Corey, you cut out for a second. Oh, so, uh, so hey, sorry, you cut out came, for a second there. I think at this time all they had was the tape. Uh they had like they'd released up to friendly people at that point. And they came and they were opening for the Offspring at I'm pretty sure the Opera House. Like I know I know that the Offspring haven't blown up yet at this point in their history. And Scott gets gets them a copy of our turfed tape. 
Yeah. Just this is this was back in the day. You just gave your tapes to everybody, right? You're just mm -hmm. like, oh, we really like your record. Here's our tape, which I still appreciate when people try. Like some people are like, I've I've seen other bands be dicks about it. I don't like necessarily like trading stuff, but if somebody's giving you just because when you're trading something, you end up with one and the the band of five people's giving away yeah. some like how do you split a CD? But like the, the thought behind it is great. And so we gave them the tape. And then I remember we were jamming in Scott's basement. I don't know, a year later, maybe. And Gord comes in, he had gone down on a city run. That's how we used to get our music. Right. And he comes back in with Terry Yakamoto. And he's like, I got the new gutter mouth. And we're all like, oh, yeah, right on. He's like, wait till you hear this. Because <laughs> he'd listen to it on the way home. And he puts it in Scott's CD player. And he skips it up to Mark's arc. And he starts playing it. And the room was just, we just, we couldn't even believe it. Like, it was just dead silence. And it was like, no one even said, I don't think anybody said a word the whole first playthrough. And it was like, rewind. Like, play that again. Like, we knew what had happened. But it was, you were just boggled. Play that again. So... Yeah, so, so I guess they'd ripped off. Like, I, I still think it's too much of a coincidence. We never really got a straight answer from oh, they, them. They 100% stole that, that riff. Yeah. There's no yeah. way they didn't yeah. steal that riff. It's like these songs sound identical. Yeah, and the, the vocal line's pretty much exactly the yeah. same. Every drum pops exactly the same. So, like, we never... And then, like, we had our chance to really confront them, and we, like, we all kind of... Like, they played upstairs at the Elmo that time, and we all kind of pussed out. And the only person that really did anything about it was Sandy, who stood in front of the stage and screamed at them the entire time they were playing, which, like, she had more balls than, than we did, because we didn't even, like, confront them at all. But she just stood there all night and, like, screamed, Play Bad Skater! Play no offense song. And like to the point where at some point the guitarist, like, why don't you shut the fuck up? And I was just like, oh, what a, what a, what a great move by Sandy. But yeah, I've heard now since I've heard now since, and I don't know, but I've heard now since that it's not like the first time they've done it. I don't care. Whatever it is, what it is. It's That's just like the ultimate gimmick, like to, to be the band that just travels around. You kind of get every band to give you their tapes at the end of the night. You steal the best songs. And that's yeah. your career. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, which at the time, it was so angry because, like, I really loved the first record and Friendly People so much. Like, those records for me, like, were, like, I absolutely adored them. They were so, so sarcastic. They were so funny. Like, the music was fast. They hadn't gotten into the, they started getting into, like, swingy, way too jokey stuff a couple albums later. I wasn't into that. But, like, One, Two, Three, Slam, all that stuff. I was super into, and then to have your song, like, jacked. Well, they and also I still revealed themselves to be dicks at that show for a variety of right. reasons, if I remember correctly. It was like, you know, everyone was kind of pissed off going in because they had stolen your song. And then also in the course of that show, it was like one of these things where it's like, oh, these guys aren't cool. Well, and they weren't even, like, and they and they weren't, like, that was my first time seeing them. And they yeah. weren't even, like, they didn't, they certainly weren't that good that that yeah. night yeah. that night so and then they got banned from canada a couple of yeah. years ago yeah stay la vie la vie so they'll have no more no more canadian songs to steal yeah exactly now they're gonna just have to steal american and uh, french songs in france yeah or germany um wherever uh so you know so charlie horse comes out and like is like obviously you guys were 
were incredibly popular in Toronto, but they, were there like other places you guys are finding on tour where, where the records kind of taken hold of or gotten out to? Not really. Like, not really. Like around, like around Toronto, like on- Ontario, basically. Like, yeah. We played, we played a couple times. We only played a couple times in Quebec period. Like our whole time. We were not, we were not very good at, at getting out. And so like we, we got out of Ontario a couple times and it wasn't fantastic any of the times. And it's no one's fault, like not the promoter's faults, but they just weren't great. The one time was with satanic surfers. So that show was pretty good because it was their crowd and we did fine with it, but yeah, we didn't. And then we would get letters once in a, once in a blue moon, Scotty and I would get records like letters from, cause God always put his home address in the records and stuff like, send 25 cents for a, like a lyric sheet because <laughs> yeah. we only printed like half the lyrics. I think in the first record, we didn't have space. So if you want the full lyric sheet, send us a quarter and uh, we'd get like letters from like Finland or like, like odd places, but just one-offs. Like there was never like this groundswell of support from anywhere else, but we did okay. Like Oshawa, we always did good. Ottawa, we did pretty good. Like anywhere around Toronto, like we did all right. Better days, when, like, like when you guys kind of like, sorry, well, better days, like it got played a bunch in like three weeks. But like, I think if we were five years older, we would have picked my girlfriend's wooden because it's like a minute long. Like we would have done mm-hmm. what, what I accuse Gob of doing very, very intelligently picking very short songs that get played at the end of shows to boost the CanCon numbers. And because I think Gob got played at the end of every show for like a year straight. <laughs> like, we only have one minute left. Oh, put on that. I want to jump in a lake song. Because <laughs> it was always like at like 229. It's, you know, it's Gob time. Like, and they got played a ton. And our like Better Days was almost like four minutes long. And it is what it is. It's, 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 it's a video. It's got some funny moments if you know us in it. But like, to, to, if you don't know any of us, it's it's a bit of a train wreck, and and it just it got played a bunch in a couple of weeks because probably like somebody at much maybe liked you know something that was kind of like skate punk and yeah it qualified as cancom but it had like a little novel you know push to it and then I don't know what happened to it it sort of fell off the radar which was more plays than we ever expected so we were totally happy with it. But that's sort of what it did for us. A lot of people still say like, oh, I love that video. And it's got a, you know, it's got some watches on YouTube and stuff like that. And a lot of people say that's how I found out. Like people from Edmonton or something like that might say, yeah, that's how I found out about you guys was from the video and from much music. Mm -hmm. So it did, it did its job, but it could have been more effective if we'd just chosen a different song. And to this day, more people want to hear My Girlfriend's Wooden than anything else, which is just cracks me up because it's the most ridiculous song I think we ever wrote. Yeah. And I would have picked newspaper as a single off that record, but you know, I don't think that would have gotten the plays either. Cause it's an, cause it's an attempt at writing like a nugget. It's a nugget. <laughs> I love that song so much. Um, yeah. But like, it's funny. Cause like, you know, better days got played, you know, obviously that God video got played, like, as you say, like a ridiculous amount. Uh, and then yeah. there's like, especially you by the smugglers and then DBS snowball. But that's right. really the only videos that Much Music kind of played for 
during like sort of like the punk boom. Yeah, pretty much. Once in a blue moon, I think they had like, yeah, that's, I can't really think of anybody else that benefited too much from it. Like some of the bands, like obviously like Doughboys had already blown up at that point. Yeah. So they weren't really punk, punk anymore. They were like a pop band. Uh, I don't really, we didn't see any of the Western stuff. You might see it on like much West at that point. You'd see like, you know, Sons of Freedom or something like bands that had punk things to them, but there wasn't a lot of, like you never saw an SNFU video at no. that time. And they were current still at the time. Or a trigger happy video for that matter. Like, right. You know, like it was, it was really, uh, you know, and, and then obviously like that gob video, as you say, because it was so short that, you know, why it got played as much as it did, but it was like, it was amazing. Like to think of like what much music picked up on and the videos that it did pick up on, even if it was just for a short period of time. Right. That gob bit. And I'm certainly not slacking that. That gob video is genius. Oh, like them just video. jumping, but them just jumping bikes into a lake and the bugs and at the, the end song when he, is when he opens his mouth with all yeah. the bugs in it. Yeah. That's the, that's the cell. That's the reveal. That's the reveal. But exactly. that, that, that song is like the, it doesn't even matter what the, I, I don't even mind the song, but that song, like I want to jump in a lake and your video is about jumping in a lake. <laughs> like don't overthink, keep it simple, stupid. Don't overthink it get to the chorus don't bore us like that song that video combination is like every like it's perfect yeah they they nailed they nailed it yeah and it's funny because like those guys because they were older too like but i I don't think they were in any bands prior to that yeah well i mean they were like there was so much disconnect between us and the west coast right we didn't really hear about like their scene in any kind like they're on a street level you'd have to be huge for like people from Ontario to hear about a punk band getting out of like Vancouver. I guess with the exception of DBS, cause DBS made it out here. you like, you guys tour with them on snow jam, right? Yeah. Somebody just asked me about that today. They're like, Oh, do you know D- a guy from Ch- Czech Republic? I'm talking to online. He's like, do you, do you know DBS? I'm like, Oh yeah. And he's like, what, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, like they almost got us beaten up outside of snow jam. Cause one of those guys threw a bottle at a bunch of bikers that were walking by. And then, like, DBS jumps in their van and drives away. So the only idiots left standing on the street are Vibe Knuckle Chuckle with this, like, group of bikers coming toward us. So I don't, like, beyond that, like, 10 seconds, they could be the best guys in the world. But beyond that, I'm, I'm only judging them on that second. They didn't make my life easier for the next, like, 20 minutes trying to make sure they didn't get kicked. So that's, like, my 10-second synopsis of DBS. Uh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, but they got that, and that, that their video got played, right? So, yeah. and they were like pretty, like I think, I think much had a thing, like much liked young seeing young bands, and like yeah. Gob was obviously young. We we look pretty young in our video. We were pretty young. Uh, DBS looked incredibly young in their video. Mm-hmm. Like DB, I mean, I remember much playing Old Skull all the time. Remember those guys? Yep, yep. <laughs> Homeless people who don't have homes. <laughs> Uh, then they they ultimately like, they, started playing Serial Joe too, right? So exactly, they loved seeing kid stuff. Yeah. So maybe that that was like one of the ins is like fresh faced noobs playing punk rock. They they liked that. Well, and also I think also you guys were like the at that you know especially at that moment like the best band doing that style in the country, you know, like and it was just like. You know, it's one of those things that much music had to kind of, you know, if they're going to play any band doing that style. They had to play you guys. 
I guess, yeah. yeah. Like, I would still argue that, like, at that time, well, maybe the, these bands didn't, like, SNVU was doing it better. Propagandi was already around, but I'm sure they weren't making videos because I don't think I've ever seen one. No, I don't think they were, off, like, but I mean, they were, they were, like, yeah, maybe we're the only band doing it that had a video. Yeah, like, like we, we'd go out and play sometimes and play with bands that were doing it just as good, if not better than us. Well, but, like, you would know. you guys like? Who would you guys play with when you guys were out playing across Canada? Like, was it just like random bands, or or, or even in the U.S. was it like, or were you guys playing within, you know, kind the of like the scene? What we what we call the U.S. tour was like it was a debacle. But um, <laughs> the names that I can remember are we played with a band from like I I blew Scott's mind when I remember this one. We played with a band from Hawaii called Grapefruit. Oh yeah, like, I remember that like, band. Holy shit! Yeah. So we play with grapefruit. They've come up on this show before too, because on the Jonah Ray episode, they've come up. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we remember, I remember them because one guy had a giant Afro and they had a seven. We were blown away that they had a seven inch. Like they were arguably like smaller than us. We're like, you guys got a seven inch, (laughs) which like coming from Canada, we were like, it's impossible to get a seven inch where I guess at that point in the States and probably still to this day, it's not that hard to get a seven inch. If you've got money, somebody will make you a seven inch. Um, so we played with them one show. I don't remember. That was in San Luis Obispo. Okay. So yeah. that was like our big California show, which doesn't bode well for all the places you can play in California. When San Luis Obispo is your best show, you didn't book a good California tour. So, but then we also played in Nevada and the, the bands I remember from that show, which was actually a good show was Game Face and Zoinks. Oh, fucking awesome. Yeah. So, and we actually stayed at the one guy from Zoinks's house, and uh, he he like two of us I think stayed in the house, or three of us stayed in the house, and the other guys slept in the vans, and which at like you know two in the morning is an awesome. Well, yeah, it's pretty crowded in here. I'm gonna go sleep in the van, and then they wake up at like eight thirty or nine in the morning, and it is 140 degrees in Nevada, and they're like. They can't even breathe. It's so hot. And then they're banging on the door and no one gets up to let them in. So they actually had to go. They went to the casino because it was air conditioned (laughs) (laughs) and just sat around and and called us until we actually answered the phone. But yeah. And then around here, like, I mean, um, some of the other notables, like I don't remember who we played with in, in BC, in Saskatoon, like that wheat fest, like the smalls were probably like the big notable band on there. Um, in Edmonton, we played with Choke, which was awesome. Like we'd heard of them and we had uh, some sort of like mini connection with them, but I think it was the first time we'd seen them. And that was great. Uh, but around here, I mean, you, you probably like there was like, you know, we played with Random Killing a lot. We played with Trigger Happy a lot. We didn't do a lot of local shows for a, a long time that didn't, that weren't, we weren't opening for somebody or wasn't somebody like touring of like a B level or higher. Mm-hmm. Like we just didn't, we didn't come down and play like a lot of just all Toronto band shows. There was like, we'd go to like Hamilton or something, play with Sector 7 or go and play with Trunk or any of those other bands. But like a lot of raw energy roster bands and then like touring bands. Mm-hmm. So. And so like, I and then there's like, uh, you know, you, you kind of, I guess, get to the point where you're doing the second record. Um, right. And so was it just like you didn't shop around to anyone? You just kind of were just like Rodgers yeah. again. I'd be lying if I I'd be lying if I said I remembered us shopping it at all. Wow. Like I think we were we were pretty pleased that like Raw Energy was gonna pay for another record. 
Yeah. Like yeah. We, we really, we, we hadn't re- like, we had always had access to get more CDs and sell them off of the stage. So we made some money off of Charlie horse, mm-hmm. but I don't think we ever like got any kind of check. Yeah. Well, anything that we didn't sell ourselves, but, but then, so we did okay with it because we sold a bunch of them off stage, but the, when, when the opportunity came up and they're like, yeah, well, we'll put you back in a studio and you can do another record. And at that time, I think one of the big selling points is you'll be the first raw energy band to ever release a second record with raw energy. <laughs> and which wasn't <laughs> in retrospect, it should have been like a, hold on a second. Maybe we shouldn't leap at this opportunity, but we were like, all right, we're setting precedence here. I remember you had this plan too, for the release party where you guys were going to do a history of Ontario hardcore set. And this is at a time before I knew any of these names, but you were talking about how you're going to do a Sons of Ishmael cover. Yeah. During yeah, that but, set. Ishmael has a like a weird like eight person following here in Orangeville. And I think there's probably I don't know how many MSI like the the hand drawn cover with like the Wizard of Oz. I don't know how many of those seven inches are actually out there anymore, but there's at least six of them here in Orangeville. <laughs> like MSI would have probably been on that list as well. Yeah. Yeah, so do you remember who else was on the list too? No, I wouldn't have. Maybe there might have been Guilt Parade, okay. to an asshole. That that would that would have been our pick because that was like the the linchpin of that record for us. Uh I can't even think who else would have been on there, to be honest. Where like where would you guys where were you aware of these records from? Is it just like from those older guys? The older guys. I wasn't going to shows like I didn't get to a punk rock show until like, I think hockey teeth was my first punk rock show. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't get, get to go to like, I was like raised pretty religious and like, I wasn't very religious, but my parents were and I respected it enough. I didn't like flaunt everything I was doing in their faces. And one of the givens was I was going to be home by midnight. I was like, I didn't go to the city like at night and go to shows and stuff like that. So I didn't get to, I missed like a ton of, ton of great shows that I was sem- somewhat aware of, but I just, there was just no, there was no point to me even trying to go. I remember when Fugazi, like I was, I lived and died by Fugazi for quite a while and they were, I'd missed them once and then they were coming back and they were, they were playing at the warehouse, I think with one of those warehousey type places. I can't remember which one it was cause I didn't go. But it was with when they played with uh, Shudder to Think, and I had to work at IGA, and I, I mentioned I, I made the mistake of mentioning to my dad that I was thinking of going down to the city to a show, and he was just like, "No, you you're working that night." I'm like, "Yeah, but I can get a switch." He's like, "There's no way you're switching your shift to go to a show," and that was that was it. So. Like even the some of the show, like if it was a midweek show, there was absolutely no chance of me going. I remember going to shows where I didn't even tell my parents I was going to the city. I just I'm, wow. I'm going over. I'm staying. I'm staying at Gord's house, and then we would like rock down to Toronto and see like SNFU with Alice Donut, and then like <laughs> drive back. So then, like, I if on the, the off chance that my parents called over to Gord's <laughs> house, that I. So yeah, so. so. But you, be, I remember, like when I was a kid, you seemed so wild. Did you have a wild period, or is that just my memory of being younger? When I was, no, I was, I was just saying, I was fairly wild when I was out, and uh, but it was all unbeknownst to my parents. I'd always be 
quote unquote sleeping over at somebody's house, come home the next morning looking all dapper and dandy. And they really had no idea. Like I was never really any into anything like too stupid so but they like and and i would never say like i was going out like my parents didn't know that i drank before i was 19 Mm -hmm. like not even because they just my parents to this day barely drink at all and if i'm sitting around with them like i would never even think of having a beer in front of them and so and it was the same back then so like that my out life was so completely different from my home life and it was more just a matter it wasn't even a matter of like hiding it it was just respecting that they wouldn't like it and they wouldn't understand it and they didn't want to bother explaining it all to them so i just didn't tell them anything so was that even going on when you were started playing shows were you sneaking yeah. out to do that no the, like when we, when we had the bit like they the band was kind of a job okay. like i had a job and i I had the band they realized like my dad is very fiscally appropriate so there was the chance like he could i don't know they, my parents have never seen me play in anything that i've played in in 24 years not one note they've never seen me stand on a stage but they would have absolutely hated that they might they might like some of the stuff i've done in between but they would have hated that stuff yeah so they knew i was going and playing shows and we were getting paid to play so those those nights when we were doing shows they knew that i'd be out and i'd probably be coming back in the morning i'd stay over at somebody's house in the city because we don't want to drive back at two in the morning blah 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 mm-hmm. just make it easy on them but yeah they knew we were out and playing that did not but it was but by that by the time i'm out and playing i'm like 18 yeah. more or less so it wasn't such a stretch but like at 16 when we're 16 and 17 when we were starting up and doing the the weekend parties and stuff like that they had no clue what was going on so I guess like, you know, I want to, I can talk forever and hopefully you'll come back for a, another part in the future. But uh, yeah. I guess before I kind of, you know, what happened where you decided to kind of end Five Knuckle Chuckle? Like how did that kind of come about? Okay. So I'm about, it's about 97. I'm 22. And I was starting to like, I I didn't like, I liked the songs we wrote wrote for all hemmed up but i was at this point i'm starting to listen to like propagandi and Lagwagon and these like super super tech polished bands from the states more or less the states and and i just didn't think we were ever gonna get to that level mm-hmm. like that's just you know nitpicky you know your own stuff better than anybody else looking backwards on it blah 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 but i just didn't and i just thought this is not gonna be a career this is fun and we've had a ton of fun. We've been doing it for like four or five years at that point, but like, I got to do something like, and, and I want to go to school. So like, even while we're recording, right. Even basically while we're writing all hammed up, like I've got in my head that I'm going to finish the record. We're going to put it out and I'm going to leave. And no one in the band knows this yet at this, like they do now, but they, at this point in time, while we're writing this stuff, they don't know that I'm thinking that because I'm, I'm really working out. Like, can I even get in anywhere? What do I want to take? I'm doing all that stuff sort of on the slide, just in my own head. My parents have been pushing me for four years since like I finished high school. And for the very first year, I'm like, I'm just going to take a year off. And then the second year I'm going to take another year off. And then third year I'm going to take another, they, they, just really 
at this point, about 21 or 22, they're really ramping up the, are you going to go this year routine? So, you know, I started buying into it and just wanting to get away. Like I wanted to do the second record and then just stop. Like I was kind of tired. I was just kind of tired of, I felt like we'd been doing the same stuff since around 95, since like, like Charlie horse drops, to 97 like all hammed up drops i didn't feel like there's musical progression but i didn't feel we've made any kind of career progression whatsoever so so i just i i applied to school and got in in carlton and like i you know i wrote the the last song on all hammed up like the not hidden track the see you later alligator song is like basically a song from me to scott saying like you know I know it's over, but let's not say that it's over. You know, rejection is the worst when it comes to, like I'm trying to explain myself, but even writing that, putting it on the record, like he still really kind of thought it was about probably a girl or just like with the vague writing that I was want to do at that point in time. It wasn't for a couple of years. I don't think that I told him that that song was about me leaving, but even that, like there's, there's a lot of things that I did during those four years that I don't look back on very fondly with with adult glasses on and just the way that like i hung some people out to dry when i left the band like the band knew before i before i was leaving like i let them know with a fair advance but like the label didn't the label had no idea i'm pretty sure i quit i I called them up and left a message on their machine from ottawa like i'd already moved so I could have been. So you guys didn't really play live on, on that record, really at all. No, not much. Like the the summer leading up to like the summer leading up to it coming out, we played a bunch, and then by like September, when I, when I moved up to Ottawa, I saw Five Knuckle Circle as a three piece one time. I'm like, yeah, that was like that was not me. They tried to do some shows with Sean playing and singing everything, and it just didn't didn't click for them. So. It wasn't so. It was definitely two full years that we did nothing because I was up in Ottawa for those two years. Yeah, I don't because I don't remember ever so, seeing yeah. it in any of the other configurations. Like I don't, I don't remember them playing. No, and I think people who mention it, like definitely, they they did a whole tour with it, like a like a Canadian tour. They did a whole tour without me because I quit. I I basically I quit the band a couple times. That time I quit because I didn't feel that the tour was really well. It was a winter tour. It was Canadian dates only. The The van was breaking down. We had like no guarantees on any show. The show seemed really sketchy. And with about three or four weeks before the, the tour was to start, I said to Scott, I was just like, I can't go on this. This is going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. So like I kind of quit at that point and they did that tour without me. Like Sean sang and played. So there are there's a handful of people who saw those shows and then there's a couple like I think Stratford, they played once with me. I know that the Propagandi show that they, that Five Knuckle Chuckle played with in Oshawa was one of the few Sean shows because I remember watching them. <laughs> it was like very weird watching Five Knuckle Chuckle. Didn't you play with Five Knuckle Chuckle though when, uh, in, in Pro- when they opened for Propagandi in Toronto? Never played with them in, tr- in Toronto. I thought you guys did on that. Uh, oh, I guess not. I guess it was like, I remember it being a bunch of Ronergy bands the second night. But I guess it wasn't you guys. No, no, it wasn't us. The only time I, I know that they played with them was it was in Oshawa. I think it was the 
Moon Room. Okay. And I remember watching my, my favorite part of that show was Adam Langridge, like Chris Hanna was doing his thing. He was talking at the audience. It was a very long convoluted and very erudite speech about something or other. And, and Adam had had a couple of drinks and he yelled out, if, is this going to be on the exam? And Chris Hanna just shot him like the dirtiest look. And we, we couldn't stop laughing. We loved propaganda, but oh, yeah. Like we were like we were real like they were touring less talk more rock and we were thinking that at that moment we we're like you know this is this is cool but it's been about four minutes since you played a song this is like really weird we'd never yeah. seen anybody stand there and talk for so long <laughs> especially when they were they, so uh... then they'd play a song and it'd be insanely good <laughs> and you'd be like oh my god don't talk between the next one just play another song. <laughs> They, uh, that tour was like the most, because they, they had never come out here, right? Like that was the first time right. they'd ever been out here and right. people had just fiended for it for so long. And then like, instead of doing, you know, like one huge show, they did like two night stands in like every town. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a bizarre tour. Um, did the London show though? is the the legendary one on that tour because that's when they played with shoulder and left for dead and left for okay. dead and propagandi beef with each other uh, on stage and like left for dead sets like just chris callahan ripping on propagandi the whole time and then propagandi's just like calling out left for dead afterwards during their set it's a uh well like I can only speak for myself and my small scene but like let's talk more rock didn't like come firing out the gates like a lot of people didn't want that record that's funny because like for me it was different like obviously i like you know like i'm like a a, like i think a generation kind of removed so but that record to me is the defining propaganda record but when chris hannah was on this show he was talking about the backlash that record that got for them yeah i think just like speed like i love i love that record now but i remember not totally buying it when i got when i got it Mm -hmm. i was just like i got all the messages i got like it was way more overtly political and i thought well that's cool it's his form he can do with what he pleases but for me like a a good third or like of the record was in my opinion slow and they were Mm -hmm. so good fast like he's one of the best and he's still one of the best punk rock guitarists period like it's almost it's barely punk rock what they're doing now it's almost like full-on metal but like I couldn't believe that he'd taken like all of that amazing guitar stuff that he did on how to clean everything, which they apparently hate and turned it into like hardly doing any of it at all on less talk more rock. Mm-hmm. So, and then they came and they played a lot of that record. Mm-hmm. And so I remember like there was a lot of people yelling out old songs and they were just met with like, you know, Chris was not buying it. He was just like, no, not playing that one. No. And here's another speech. Like it wasn't, it was not a warming, welcoming seeming environment, but they, they were incredibly good. (laughs) And, and looking back now, I don't begrudge them. Like, I mean, I've, I look back now, I, every single album they've made, I love for when they did it. 
think every one of them makes sense. Every one of them's like perfect on their career trajectory. Like they just keep knocking them out of the park. But at that time, like, you know, 21, 22 year old me was just like, no, why did you slow down? You should be even faster than the last year. Like uh, for us, everything was always like, get faster, get mm-hmm. more technical. Like we wouldn't have been happy unless you sounded like, like mutoid man. Like it would just you need 7 million notes per song. Like that's where we were aiming at. There was a comment made in the studio. Like when you were, I don't know if you were in the room that day, but when we were recording that all hammed up record, somebody from Ron energy was trying to get us to slow songs down. We were, we thought they were like from Mars. We're like, why would we play anything slower? Like, no, <laughs> we're working hard to be faster. Like, I I remember because I, I remember also one time like one of my f- first bands we opened that show for you guys at that band, you are the band in trouble, show in trouble and yeah you're in trouble you're in trouble and I went up to you afterwards and I was talking to you and I was like are you gonna go to the DOA show and you're like I don't like punk I just like hardcore yeah and it was like yeah, I didn't go on sorry. Yeah, I didn't know what was what at that point. Like, looking back now, that's such a stupid thing to say. We weren't even, like, we weren't hardcore. I barely listened to hardcore at that time. But, like, that's what we called the stuff we were listening to in Orangeville. We wow. called it, like, our, like melodic hardcore was, yeah. like, yeah. no effect. Yeah. We didn't know, like, we barely knew about, like, we knew about Gorilla Biscuits and Sick of It All and stuff like that. But we didn't know about, like, Discharge or, you know, Poison Idea or anything like that. So where did the speed come from then? Is it from metal? Like then the the need for speed? Because like, uh, if it's not from hardcore, then. We came through like Metallica and Slayer and DRI and all those bands. And like, right. Like, I mean, no, no effects was a pretty fast band Mm -hmm. during the the great records. And then like that first, like the duh record came out for Lagwagon and we were just like floored. We couldn't. Like, how do you play that? We didn't realize that they told us later their tape speeded up too when they went and got it mastered. So, (laughs) so we're like, oh, that's the trick. But, uh, no, everything that we loved around that time is like the fastest stuff we could find. I don't know where it came from. It was just like for us, it was like I'm more of a minor threat guy than I am, uh, like a DOA guy. And it's, you know there's times you can put those bands side by side they almost like you know that style they sound the same mm-hmm. but like for me i can listen to circle jerks and i love all the super fast songs and i don't much love like the mid-paced songs it was just like that time like punk for me was just the the better the faster the speed the better the song mm-hmm. which like i could have found even faster stuff had i known about it but well, i was well, like my... at least the swedish stuff right like that's i guess the next evolution was like when all those bands in Sweden started doing it. Oh, like when we first heard Randy, like we didn't even yeah. know what was going on. Yeah. We were just like, holy cow. And then like Randy became something completely different as well. Mm-hmm. But like when we first heard, I think we heard them on a comp and it was just like a, a like a, a quite good song. And then I think we were at Underworld in, in Montreal and somebody was flicking through their acts and they're like, oh, Randy, there's no way we're going to fit in. And so I was like, oh, that's that's what I've been looking for. And I grabbed that. And I don't even think, I think like it must have been pretty late in the cycle because I think the rest is silence came out like really quickly after like in our world. And when the rest of silence came out, we were just like, what is going on? Like how are like these guys, this is the fastest stuff, like melodic stuff that we'd ever heard, like, and most technical stuff that we'd ever heard. 
Yeah, like Randy was, Randy was out of this world. I like, I like their catchy stuff. Don't get me wrong, but for me, like that was the epitome of a band. Like when the next one came, even the rest of Silence has a couple of those sing along songs. But then I can't even remember Human. What what came next? I can't even remember Human Adam. No, not the one with the the rock, the jet on the front or whatever. Wasn't it the Sky EP? Oh, it might have been. Which would they did yeah, a that, record of all ska rec songs, right? Right. That would have hurt me. <laughs> well that that's the like, thing about that band that's amazing is like every record's like complete they're like stanley kubrick of punk genres like every film is like a different genre like every record they put out is like one record's them trying to be no effects then it's them being propagandi then it's right. them as a 77 punk band or them as a ska band then it's them as like a 77 punk band then them as a power pop band but right. it's always and them but it's just see. different <laughs> yeah and they're and they're really good at all of them. Yeah, like they're really good. And they when I when I saw them, they were already half into the slower, really tom, all that sing alongy stuff. But the the fast songs they played, I would there was still enough fast songs that I was still blown away by them. Mm-hmm. And the, I could watch their bassist like probably two hundred nights a year and just be happy because he's like one of the most watchable players I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> So, yeah, like the speed, I've, I'm at a different point in my life now where it's not everything, but like I'm still blown away when I hear like a really good, like super fast band. And it's still like the, the thing that grabs me. Like vocals always has always been a thing that grabs me, but like the speed and the tech, like the technical precision. I love bands that just play str- insanely fast, straight power chords too. But like when they can have those little weedly deedlies and, and all that stuff, and it's not just overbearing, I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Well, Corey, as I say, I could talk to you forever and uh, we have to do a part two, but before I let you go, we've talked about her a little bit. We got to talk about Sandy because I yeah. think my friendship with Sandy, who's now of course, long-term uh, band member with me in fucked up was th- through liking fu- liking five knuckle chuckle right like i think that our our mutual love of your band was how we first met yeah sandy was probably like our first out of town super fan that i can remember mm-hmm. like that would actually like like be at all like if not every show almost every show and would like come up and talk and always be injured like and it was it was always super genuine like she was always interested in what we're doing and she like was always researching stuff and always knew like what was going on like we barely had to tell her stuff she like knew what we were going to be doing next anyways so yeah so sandy was pre-internet too to have all this information but you're right she was like I remember she took a cab to see you guys play a rave one time. Yep. Yeah. She used to like, and, and sometimes need drives back to like wherever <laughs> she was coming from, like with a band member or something like that. She would just show up with no way of getting home, but she yeah. had to be at that show. Yeah. Right. So she it, was, and, and like I said before, she was the one, like she was the most vocal person that stood up for us against Guttermouth, which, you know, I like, she was probably, as offended by the whole thing as we were. Yeah. Like she's like, definitely like, you know, like had a, a level, like, and I was, a, I was someone that became obsessed with bands and, and like had like, an, you know, I'm sure <laughs> definitely you can speak to that as well. Um, that was like, you know, 
like got really into bands, but I think Sandy had this passion where like, yeah, like she would work just to go to a concert. Like, like her whole week's salary at her job would be spent going to see a local band play because yeah. she'd be going out of town to see him do it. Yeah. And I think the one thing that stood out about her, like that, I can't say of every punk of that time period was like, she would always, she would tell everybody what she liked. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there was, there was certainly a thing there. I know there it's still like in different little enclaves of punk is like, you keep everything to yourself. I'm the only, me and my friends are the only band that like the only guy that liked this band. She was screaming it from the rooftops who she liked for all the bands that she liked. Mm-hmm. So like she was, you know, she was into spreading the word and like draw, like drumming up support for people, not just like hiding it and being like part of this exclusive little club. She wanted the bands to do better. Mm-hmm. She wanted them to get their due and, and to be bigger. And, you know, it was all very, it was all very cool. Well, uh, as I say, Corey, I, I want to do a part two one day with you as well. But um, also, we got to get these records reissued on vinyl because I, know. Uh, I would love that so much. Yeah. Well, like the the, the 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 CD thing is like almost done. We found some one of our friends found 40 five knuckle ch- chuckle CDs in an auction online <laughs> and won them and, and won them for a grand total of three dollars. So we've been sell I've been selling them all day and they're going like hotcakes, but like they're not gonna last until the week. Like, they're not even gonna like we were like, Wow, we'll have CDs for our first show, which is in like three weeks, and we're not gonna have any CDs left. You're gonna it's have to reissue the tape, and, the no offense yeah. tape. <laughs> so but we're we're gonna digitize them and at least throw them up so people can at least have them because they're they're it's it's odd that in the last couple of days, there's people from like places that we have never obviously gotten to. We've never got to Czech Republic or Japan or anything. And they're like, they're ordering shirts and CDs and they're not, they're, they're ordering like, send me three shirts and five CDs. I'm like, it's, it's just one CD. And they're like, yeah, I got five, I got five friends who want it. I'm like, how do you guys like, we're not even big here. How do you, and they're just like, no, we, we are all fans of early nineties skate rock we read every message board. We've got this extensive list of bands that we've got to find their stuff. And this all hammed up CD, this is the, like, they're like, this is the crown jewel. I'm like, wow. Okay. I'll definitely send you five, but it's just very odd to me, but they're going to, they're going to, and then once they're gone, like this is probably the last we'll ever see it. Cause we're not going to ever make it on CD again. It's going to be vinyl or it's going to be nothing because who no one even wants a CD anymore. They just want to put it in their computer and then listen to it on all their devices or the people who really like, you know, having stuff, they want to have the vinyl these days. So we just got to find somebody to pay for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's hopefully comes out soon on, on vinyl because like, as you say, like, you know, last chance to get the CD ever is going to be slipping through people's fingers. Yep. And we can't even find a Charlie horse. There's like no Charlie, like there, they could be in some, who knows? There could be these. Apparently, came from some warehouse, some like storage warehouse, and they, they were just cleaning out their their stock or whatever. But I know the one guy who walked away with most of the boxes of the Rhinergy stuff, and he said long ago, he's like, "No, I don't have any of the five knuckle stuff. That stuff was gone." So this could be it. Well, well, I, I once again, Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show, and let's do a part two at some point. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me, Damien. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you, Corey, for coming on the show. Now, Corey will be back, hopefully, for future episodes. And Five Knuckle Chuckle is back together. They're playing their first show, uh, I believe, right coming up. Maybe even tonight, if you're hearing this podcast when it drops. Uh, they are back together doing some shows. And if you never got to see this band when they were around the first time, go out of your way and go and see them now. I will definitely be there. So we will be able to mosh together in the pit and have some unity vibes in the pit. Because, uh, yeah, I'm so excited to see this band again. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of excited, once again, this weekend in Chicago at the House of Vans on North Elizabeth Street, there will be a show going down featuring legends, legends of music, Cap and Jazz, and Hop Along. I'm going to be doing a live podcast with both bands. And, uh, yeah, get down there early. Doors are at 7 p.m., but it's first come, first entry. So get there early. Remember, Google. You got to Google. Vans, Cap and Jazz. House of Vans, Cap and Jazz. And RSVP, too. But get there early because that's when we're doing the live podcast. And that's the only way to get in. So that is it for this week's show thank you very much again to tristan abraham for all his hard work on this thing my little brother and the little uh busy bee that makes this thing tick and run so well speaking of running so well this show is running on jet fuel because next week on the show roger moret of the band agnostic front i a, a god to me as far as vocalists go someone that has Man, when Fucked Up first started, we had songs called like AF1 and AF2 because we wanted these songs to sound just like Agnostic Front. Anyway, he is on the show. It's an, a really fun conversation. Someone that I've never had a chance to kind of really sit down and, and talk with extensively. So, my God, I took advantage of it. So that is next week on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, I'll see you this weekend at the House of Vans in Chicago on Saturday. If not, I will see you next week right here on the show. Remember, subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this stuff. And, uh, yeah, like that. And that's the thing. It's, it's, who knows what you're going to do with it and who knows who you're going to influence and where it's going to go because that's the wonderful thing about the uh, punk rock genre. Anyone can do it. And there's no limits to where it will go. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you again to my buddy, Corey McCallum, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you to my brother, Tristan Abraham, for producing this thing. Thank you to you for listening. And I will uh, see you at the House of Vans and see you next week. Love you, everyone. Bye. Oh, and also, I'm going to go to Japan next week. I'm going to be in Japan as of Wednesday next week. So I'm going to be there for a long time. So if you're in Japan, hit me up. Let's get in touch. Let's hang out. All right. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.